You're falling. You're falling. Where's it's life and death? Hey, don't I know you? If it goes out, it means the death of millions of people. Everyone watching, don't you understand that? If, well, say it's a bomb. Then say say whatever you want. Say whatever you like. Just get it off the air. Please, you just. I, no, no, I can't prove it. You've got to believe me. Believe me. Take it off the air now, please. You've got to at least. Wait a Tuesday interruption. We're having technical problems. Please stand by. It's time. It's time. We are experiencing technical difficulties. Please stand by. Dark masks, gather round your TV set, put on your masks, and watch. All witches, all skeletons, all jack-o'-lanterns. The third commercial, it's still on, please. Take off the third channel, the third channel, it's still running. Stop it, please, for God's sake, please stop it. There's no more time. You've got to, please, stop it, stop it now, turn it off, turn it off. Stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it. From the creepy streets of Santa Mira, California, to the big giveaway at nine, we are Halloweenies! Yes, we are indeed, but we're also a member of the Losers Club this week, as this is a crossover episode, a special bonus, if you will, for all you Halloweenies out there, and also those that love Stephen King, because we're talking to director Tommy Lee Wallace. You might know him, and you should know him, as the director of Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, in addition to working on a variety of other Halloween properties, but also the mastermind behind bringing Pennywise to the screen for the first time with the 1990s miniseries adaptation of It. It's a very special, special interview because we talk for an hour and a half, and we go long about a lot of things, not just related to these two films, mind you. So grab a bowl of popcorn maybe some candy if you have a silver shamrock mask you could even put it on because we're going to be talking to Tommy Lee Wallace right now I run a Stephen King podcast here called The Losers Club. Um, I believe you're familiar with that name, and uh, we, we yes, indeed we just spent the whole last month uh, basically dissecting the entire book from one part to another, and uh, we finally just we we reached the adaptations and. I thought it would be really cool to talk to you because not only, you know, big fans of the miniseries, but uh, ha- we also run a Halloween podcast called Halloweenies and Halloween three <laughs> is easily my favorite sequel out of the entire franchise. Oh, thank you. Love it. Absolutely. Thank so, you. Many people have been, many people <laughs> have been saying that to me recently. I think it must be to some degree. Well, we made a good movie. We knew that at the time, but I think it must be to some degree because it's actually unlike the original Halloween, no disrespect, Halloween 3 is really about Halloween. It is. It totally is. In fact, that's it's why like, it, I love revisiting it every year because it just seems like it's so emblematic of the holiday and you actually like feel as if you're in there for sure. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it, it addresses the season and the mysteries of why there is such a, such a, such a day. 
Well, I guess I would you mind uh, talking about Halloween three for a little bit? Because I, I would love to. <coughs> Don't mind at all. Oh, awesome, awesome. Yeah, I'll start there then. I really, really, really. It's it's weird. It's it's. I I wasn't one of the the fans of Halloween that was really put off by this at all you know i know that you i've, I've talked to so many fans of the years and they're like you know they rent the film and then like oh my gosh what's michael where or where's michael but for for me it's just right. there's something about i love the way that it absolutely pivots and it's it still feels you know part and parcel of what came before because there's the aesthetically i don't know i just feel like aesthetically it's still uniform with what came before but it is so also uniformly different from anything that you know that was actually said before and yeah. i you know and i i think it's actually taken on a whole new life and it and it's seen like this kind of cultural reevaluation over the years and i wonder if that was something that you noticed and you know what what do you attribute that to oh i most definitely noticed i attribute it to first the fact that it's a seasonal movie so it keeps coming up people have a tendency to pull out movies according to the time of year, especially, uh, you know, the Halloween and uh, holiday season, certainly. <laughs> People go back to the old Christmas movies, you know, mm-hmm. same deal. So it inevitably would pop up, and people kept discovering that, hey, whoa, I like this movie. It's a good movie. My only regret about the entire thing is that it was misnamed. Yeah. Uh, should never have been called Halloween 3. However, that's its redemption because it wouldn't have gotten made probably without that title. I think that both uh, the, the group, Deborah Hill, John Carpenter, and myself, and Universal Studios, who were behind this, the picture, uh, <clears throat> made a horrible mistake not advertising it properly and sharing with the audience what we were trying to do at the time, which was to start a, uh, a new anthology, we call it a a new yearly movie on the topic of, of the season of Halloween and all Hallow's Eve and all the rest, uh, and bring something new to the public every year. That just wasn't articulated, so people got shanghaied, and many people who went in, deep fans of uh, Jamie Lee and The Shape and The Big Knife and so forth, Donald Pleasance, felt shanghaied, and I don't blame them. They were, they were rightly disappointed if that's the expectation they went in with. Our responsibility was to set the table and say, hey, here's what we're really going to do. So get ready. And nobody did that. Did you, Uh, was there any discussions for that? Like, especially when when it came to like. No, no, we were horrendously naive about the whole thing. And in truth, I don't think Universal loved uh, Halloween 3 from the get go. Yeah. So, although they did a very nice. The artistic ad campaign for the movie, you know, I, I think the poster is still really a wonderful oh, yeah. piece of work. They uh, peculiarly kind of let it twist in the wind from that aspect. It, it still appalls me that nobody thought of it and that we didn't clamor for a better um, 
ad campaign to really set the table. But there you are. It went out there and it laid an egg. And then absolutely I noticed over the years as the public gradually warmed to the movie and I started showing up at these, uh, you know, the uh, comic con yeah. and, and horror thons, whatever you want to call these weekend <laughs> festivals. And noticing that there were so many fans of the movie who were defending it and saying, I don't care what anybody says, this is my favorite. And that really turned my head, uh, got me wondering. And uh, by now I'm able to look people in the eye and say, hey, you don't have to defend it anymore. It has found its audience. And any naysayers at this point, you just have to look at them funny and say, did you not get the memo? This is a good movie. Yeah. No, that's, I agree. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's come to the point now where I was just talking to an editor, uh, a friendly editor of mine, and we were talking about how we get pitches every year that's like, it's time to you know defend Halloween 3. And it's like, no, the time's over. Like, it's, it's ubiquitous now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, the, we don't that, need this. That piece train left the station. Yeah. Don't need, don't need anybody to defend it. It's standing no. quite nicely on its own. Did you, uh, you know, it's, you had mentioned that without the Halloween brand, it might not have been made. And, you know, it very, it's, a, it's a crazy story. And it's, and I, but I love how the insanity of it. And I wanted to know what your initial impressions of the story were and, and how did it evolve as production went underway? Because I know that it, it kind of handed off into, you know, a couple of different writers and all. And eventually it, it, it became your story as, as it was kind of slapped on there. But <laughs> <laughs> last man standing. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, uh, the way it transpired was that uh, uh, we were still a unit uh, after the fog really was in a behind the scenes. The fog is what followed Halloween mm -hmm. uh, and the entire crew uh, and many cast members were, uh, in fact, holdovers. Uh, so when the idea of Halloween 2 came along, a sequel to Halloween, we were nonplussed. It was, what? Yeah. Why would we want to do a sequel? We made a great movie. What else? I mean, we were then and presumably still are a part of a generation that was very skeptical about selling out. Mm -hmm. our, our, our heroes in rock and roll weren't about to let their music be commercialized and used in, uh, you know, to sell, uh, deodorant and cars that, that was kind of a, an honor system among artists, mm -hmm. which has of course broken down since then completely. But at that time, the idea of a sequel felt like a sellout. It just felt like what for? Okay. Yeah. Money, but, and sequelitis had not yet struck the movie industry. So we were still, kind of just ambivalent about the whole thing. Well, it soon became evident that that train was going to leave the station, whether we were on it or not. So John and Deborah agreed to a sequel. And there was some debate about, is this going to be a five minutes later sequel or a five years later sequel? Mm -hmm. uh, I was very much in the camp of the five years later sequel. But of course, uh, John and Deborah had the prevailing, you know, the, <laughs> the, uh, the votes. Yeah. Uh, they were most in favor, or at least I think John 
was especially taken with the idea of let's just pick up where we left off. And uh, <clears throat> the unfortunate fact for me, well, I was on as director during that phase, mm-hmm. but when John and Deborah turned in their screenplay, I I really hated it. It seemed the anti-Halloween to me because Halloween is not a gory movie at no, all. No, it's not quite, at all. It's quite, quite the opposite. And I love that style and that way of telling a good story. Uh, Halloween 2 seemed to be pandering completely to the audience's appetite for guts and gore mm-hmm. and hypodermic needles in eyeballs. <laughs> And it it's just true. totally turned it, it just totally turned me off, and uh, so I I had to say no uh, to directing, and I had to step away from the project simply because I knew I wouldn't do a very good job on on a script I didn't care much for. Uh, John has sent, recently in an interview said he didn't didn't care much for it either that he felt no. he was selling out. Yeah, but. He, but uh, on the other hand, he made a, an astute decision. The arms race of violence had taken place in the meantime, and sequelitis had had ramped up. And I think he wrote what he wrote simply because he felt he had to keep up in a way. Yeah. And his instincts, commercially speaking, his instincts were very good. Halloween 2 was a pretty good-sized hit, made a lot of money. So he did what he had to do, uh, and and I just didn't go along with it. Then uh, the the offer came down. Uh, I'm not sure of the cast of characters involved, but suddenly the possibility of making another Halloween uh, was in the air. And John and Deborah by this point we're sick and tired of Michael Myers and the the legend of the shape and all that. Yeah. Cause it, I mean, at the time but, I loved how like even Carpenter had been, I believe in interviews around the time was just like, no, he's dead. He's dead. No, that that's the ending. It's over. It's dead. It's like making sure that there was no continuation for Michael Myers at that point. I mean, and, and, and it's kind of funny in hindsight well, the way you, it ends too, because he's shot and then he's burned and then he's, it's just like, it, there is a finality to it for sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the, the only, the only thing that, that John couldn't stop was a, uh, Mustafa Akkad's appetite for, for making money. Yeah. And, and B the public's appetite for this, legend that had risen up around this Michael Myers character. Uh, and so it was inevitable that, that eventually it would go on and on. But uh, John and Deborah said yes to a third Halloween movie on one condition, that they could start all over with something fresh and new and tell an entirely different story that owed nothing to the first two. That was their only condition. And when the powers that be said yes, then they went forward. The idea was primarily Deborah's, I think, uh, in the beginning, just a one sentence pitch that went something like uh, witchcraft meets the computer age. (laughs) And that was intriguing. Yeah. In the meantime, John John had seen an opportunity to work with one of his 
uh, heroes from his childhood, uh, the the writer of the Quatermass movies and uh, television shows, uh, Nigel Neal. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they retained the services of Nigel to come up with something on that theme and uh, got to work. I believe Joe Dante was their first choice as director. And I believe Joe was involved. Joe was involved in getting the ball rolling, but then he got a, another opportunity and left the show. And so they called me up, uh, which was very gratifying. Maybe the first time in history that it happened in Hollywood where a, (laughs) a person turns, turns somebody down and then they actually, uh, (laughs) you know, ask them later to do something else because, uh, the, the more common behavior is if you turn somebody down, for a show, they won't even return your phone calls after that. It's like a blood pack, you know. Well, uh, John was, a, you know, the dearest and oldest of friends, and so uh, I was gratified about that. And Deborah, a recent friend, when they called me up, I was delighted and jumped at the chance because I, I liked the conditions that yeah. the, it'll it'll owe nothing to the old Halloween, something brand new. Let's give it a try. And so I, I jumped in head first. You know, it's that it's so interesting too because it's it's such a daring move in in the sense that like I mean I guess at that point Universal assumed that well I mean in this era it's so hard to imagine because the villains and especially after the 80s they always come back and you know that this it doesn't matter how you even kill them I mean we're talking about a, a villain that was his head was chopped off and still managed to come back somehow and it, it, it is just wild to think that like a, a major distributor was just like yeah we're gonna walk away from this and we're gonna try try this other thing were they that gung-ho about it um, you know, you had said that they might not have been so crazy about the idea while you were making it, but was there, you know, was there a lot of hesitations that you could see while you were making the movie from Universal, or did they seem at first like pretty open to the idea? Uh, Universal wasn't much in the picture once we got started. But you've got to remember at this point, uh, John and Deborah were a dynamic movie-making team, they appeared to be able to pull really decent movies out of their hat with very low budgets. Mm-hmm. So the risk was minim- minimal for any company backing them. Uh, <clears throat> and any company observing could see, wow, Halloween, bingo, big box office. Halloween 2, bingo, big box office, and the fog over here. Yeah. Plus, they were they were clearly cooking up other projects in other places. They were hot. So it, it was not that big a risk to go after them with something new. I, it doesn't seem to me that it was all that daring or all that risky for Universal to back them because, uh, you know, all movie business is a gamble, but this didn't seem like that big of a gamble. They had At that point, they had the golden touch. Did they? Was there any discussion prior to Halloween two to to take this anthology approach? You know, I know that you had said you expressed disappointment in no, no. having to do prior to 
pr- prior to Halloween too, there the, that wasn't even a gleam in anyone's eye. Oh wow! It wasn't a, it wasn't until we got to Halloween three that the conversation shifted and suddenly the idea occurred. Hey, we could we could do something new every year, which to me here in 2018 is still a gold mine of an idea. I agree. I agree. And it, it's astonishing to me that nobody has taken taken up that that thing and run with it. Uh, but I think Halloween three, the the story of the box office story of Halloween three scared scared people off that idea. People would much rather risk their millions on like a third remake of a sequel uh, than to try something new. Um, <laughs> It did feel as if this was like pretty much the split of kind of the the creatives and the the producers in a way, you know, like looking in hindsight and even based on some of the interviews I saw on like the 2014 uh, Blu-ray that came out for the box set, you know, it, it just seems as if there's still this sort of chip on the producer's shoulders. I mean, especially with someone like like Erwin Yablins, who I was kind of shocked at the, the the attitude that they still currently had towards it, and I wondered, like, did it seem at the time that you could kind of tell that, like, Akkad and Yablins might have been like, ah, this is, we should have gone with the shape, or, I mean, because after Halloween 3, it, it really does become, like, any ties to the original team was specifically on the producer side, it seems, at that point. Um, did, it, did it feel well, as if this was a split? Well, as far as I know, there was no continuity where Erwin Yablons was concerned. He was he was behind the original Halloween. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I don't know how much I don't know how much he had to do with Halloween too. I'm sure there was some sort of financial deal, but I don't think he was much involved, and he certainly wasn't involved with Halloween three. Do you feel as if um, they did like while making this for for three? Did it feel kind of like? as if you were kind of going up against the grain a little bit, or was that, was it just, did it feel as if you kind of had to like, there's like some sort of like, all right, well, we're going to try this new idea and we got to kind of prove it. Or did it, was that not even a consideration at that point? Well, that was Halloween three was my first feature. So I was, you know, just over the moon with excitement Mm -hmm. and certainly deeply determined to make a good, successful movie the implications of it or <clears throat> what it might all mean that was for somebody else to worry about my job i was i was in the the fighter jet my job was <laughs> to fly the fighter jet and get home safely you know yeah um well so i no i wasn't thinking about a lot of other implications had i been i would have insisted on a good uh, solid ad campaign for the movie so you were like you. I mean, promotion is pretty much where it came down to uh, for, for this. I would imagine. And like when it came to the budget for actual production of the film, did you feel there were any limitations on that end, or did you did you feel like as if the the special effects and prosthetics were just kind of like easy, you know, easy peasy? Uh, nothing was easy, but I felt like the budget was adequate for yeah. uh, uh, the team. Because uh, you can't just hand any any old crew and cast and producing team and directing team a certain budget and expect, especially a lower budget, and expect great results. This was a proven group. 
we knew what we were doing. We knew how to spend the money effectively. That's not always the case. But you see, I had a great, uh, it was a familiar situation. Mm -hmm. And I had stepped into the director's chair. It was fairly logical matriculation for me. And uh, John and Deborah knew that. They knew I was quite ready and quite capable of bringing this off. So, no, my feeling was of utter confidence that we had what we needed to do a good movie. And it's, it's, I will say this. Yeah. I will say this. The, uh, I think Universal lost a little bit of belief and faith in the movie when uh, they requested that we do something about the ending because mm-hmm. it's not a happy ending. It's no. not a, oh, the good guys won uh, kind of ending. <clears throat> and to John's eternal credit, he brought that to me. Uh, he was in control. The final cut was in his hands. But he treated me like a seasoned final cut director and asked me what I wanted to do and that he would uh, he would honor that because they had contacted him directly and said, uh, we are not happy with the ending. Do you feel like doing anything about that? And he just put that to me. And I thought about it for, well, the length of, it was on the same phone call. I didn't have to stop and sleep on it or anything. And I said, John, let's leave it the way it is. Yeah. And, and that's partly as a tribute to a movie that didn't get that luxury. The original invasion of the body snatchers, yeah. Don Siegel picture. Uh, they tacked a, a bookend ending on that movie that, uh, kind of let the audience off the hook that, oh, you know, the authorities have been contacted and it's all going to be okay. The only bad thing about Invasion of the Body Snatchers is that silly bookend structure that they tacked on because they didn't want to leave the movie with Kevin McCarthy staring into camera saying, you're next, you're next. Well, that's the proper ending for that movie. Oh, totally. So in a way, I was just doing that for Don Siegel and trying to set the record straight. It uh, turn it off, turn it <laughs> off. It's it's Kevin McCarthy. Oh, absolutely. Again. Only only Tommy Atkins is doing the work, and I thought it was the proper place to end the movie. And I, I think at that point, Universal perhaps lost some faith in the picture. Well, what do you, you know, let, let's talk about the ending for one second. Do, what do you feel happens at the, the day after? Do you think there's a story still there or do you just imagine it as the takeover actually does happen and a bunch of kids' heads explode all across America? <laughs> how do you, how do you, how do you see kids, it? I think a bunch of kids' heads explode all across America. <laughs> not all, not all of, not all the kids by any means. This is a tragedy that the, the world will recover from. But Connell Cochran succeeds in the child sacrifice that he felt was was uh, dictated by by tradition and time. Uh, it's time again, he says. Well, yeah. Uh, according to his perspective, he's not a great villain. He's just carrying out uh, the tribal imperative the, of child sacrifice. I I think, yes, the nation recovered from this awful tragedy, like it recovered from 9-11, you know. Yeah. I don't know how many children would have suffered from this, and it would have been an awful release of the plague, you know. But in the end, 
Connell Cochran got got what he wanted out of it, and the nation surely recovered subsequently. Does Chalice save his kids, do you think? <laughs> or do you think his, his, uh, his wife just ignores him and just keeps the, you know, the kids keep the masks on? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've always wondered I, about I that. I, it's just, it's I so, don't want to speculate. <laughs> if if you wanted to try and write a sequel, that would be a good place to start. Is did the kids? Did he get through? <laughs> you know, uh, did he make that second phone call to his wife in time? Uh, you know, it, that might be a good place to. Uh, to start a sequel and reconcile his family and all the rest, uh, you know, the, the Tommy Atkins is still out there, and Nancy Loomis, who now goes by Nancy Kyes, mm-hmm. playing his wife, is still out there. So, <laughs> I I have no interest in pursuing. Oh yeah, but, no, uh, no, not at all. I just uh, <laughs> well, for you though, if you had to choose a mask between the three of them, which one would you, would you have chosen? <laughs> Uh, well, I have a special affection for the jack-o'-lantern yeah. just because it's the one we originated. Uh, Don Post already had the witch mm-hmm. and the skeleton on the shelf, and we designed the jack-o'-lantern, the pumpkin, for uh, for the show. We could do that much, you know. It's like on Halloween, the original Halloween, we couldn't afford to generate our own mask. That's no. why I had to go out and find a mask that would that would fill the bill by the time we had Halloween three, we had enough money in the budget to originate one mask. And so we did that and it fit in pretty nicely with the other two. Uh, so I guess I have a special affection for the jack-o'-lantern. No, I did. Let's, we just recently carved pumpkins. Uh, my girlfriend and I, we just, and I did the, the design for the Halloween three, one pumpkin. And I, I just love it. I just, there's something about the way that the teeth are placed that make it so, I don't know, just, classic looking uh have you have you read a recent theory that uh connects all the halloween movies through your film uh suggesting that um (laughs) silver shamrock created michael myers also and all the sequels are just this myers robot (laughs) that's from the silver shamrock oh wow yeah i thought that was was kind of a clever little Uh, i hadn't i hadn't heard that theory but that sounds pretty good that would explain why he can't be killed yeah, it's it's because I never really thought about it either. But they, their case was, um, I guess, in the sixth one, this kind of similar yellow goo comes out of his eyes as the the robot. So that's their unifying uh, theory. Oh, yeah, so that oh that's a great unified field theory of all <laughs> yeah. the Halloweens. Wow. Well, let's say wow. that the let's say that anthology films would have continued, and they you know they could have told other Halloween stories. Did, was there any discussion at that point of any other stories that you had been kicking around, even behind the scenes leading up to it? The, the, several people have asked me this question, and to my best recollection, uh, we didn't even we didn't get that far. It would have been I, I know that had. Halloween three succeeded and had we sold the notion of a new one every year, I would probably still be involved because that's asking for creativity on a yearly basis, which sounds fun. Sounds like, uh, the, the ultimate, uh, playhouse for a a writer and director. Oh, totally. And I'm sure, I'm sure I would have been right in there, uh, dreaming up ideas, but no, we all had, had our plates pretty full. There might have been sort of joking ideas kicked around at 
at lunch or uh, after work having a drink or something, but I don't <laughs> remember any serious uh, proposals, no. Well, there's, there's talk about a like you know, proposed TV show that would be Halloween-based. And I think, I mean, because it's such a singular story and it's you can only do so much with the Meyer storyline, there's been a lot of chatter online about it being like an anthology Um Similar to, you know, what Halloween 3 was doing. And, you know, if, if that does come into fruition, would that be something that you might want? Do you think even you and John would actually be interested in coming back to? Or is it kind of like you've put the past behind you? Well, I can't speak for John, but uh, if somebody put something like that together, I'd certainly be interested in sitting down and talking about it. It's uh, it's such a fertile field, yeah. you know, especially to people who enjoy uh, scary ideas and sci-fi and horror-oriented uh, uh, subject matter. It uh, What could be more fun than trying to dream up stories about the season? Because, yeah. I mean, it's, it's being done anyway. You know, it's been done uh, all along, really, ever since the original Halloween sort of kicked off the notion. So why not? Yeah, why and not? you know, I think Carpenter just had done. He, I think he just wrote uh, a few tales of Halloween stories too. So it's it seems as if like they just make these things happen. It would could kind of have the original idea come to fruition, which would just be great. Because I, I, I don't I, have you seen the new Halloween yet? The the, the one that just came out? No, I, I haven't. Uh, I certainly figure I'll see it at some point, but I haven't seen it. I've I've heard pretty decent things about it. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean it's 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 got some interesting uh, takes on it. I mean they've they've kind of retconned the whole series again and done some you know simplified some ideas. But I, I feel like they're back in the same same position. It's just like there's only so much you could do with the shape. <laughs> you know, it's like it's, yeah. I mean, it's like how big is your appetite for watching people get murdered? Exactly. You know. <laughs> kind of what it comes down to and what's really disturbing is how big that appetite is out there i know i know and i wonder if it's just because of the true crime thing that's going on like there's a huge fascination for true crime and and if people just like the idea of a slasher maybe there's something palpable about that of everyone having their own you know back doors and front doors being broken into i don't know but it's just i think uh, this culture is trying to exercise so many demons that we created the day white Europeans landed in the new world and started killing indigenous peoples and enslaving them. And it just, that nightmare hasn't stopped. Uh, And we have to pay karmically for that. And maybe, maybe (laughs) here's a a somewhat far-fetched theory, but maybe what we're doing here is just trying to work through that rotten karma because um, yeah. we can't we can't get out we can't get out from under our past and until we look it in the eye and acknowledge it and perhaps even apologize for some of it to the world uh we're stuck with it mm-hmm. and i think that may be where this kind of fairly unhealthy obsession is coming from yeah and it's it's interesting too because you know i mean obviously times in america are very intriguing and interesting to say the least and in terms of terror and fear but you know i don't think it's that much of a coincidence that horror has had such an epic resurgence now (laughs) you know yeah i agree i agree michael it uh we're in a mess and it's a fear-based mess and fear 
uh, we're getting fear in spades. Yeah. Yeah. And it just seems as if it, this is just an escape because I've never seen, I mean, I've, I've been a horror fan my whole life. I'm 34 going into 35 and I, I've never seen an obsession with this genre at such a level. I mean, there's kids shows now, there's teen shows, there's shows for adults, there's books, there's, I mean, it's just at every facet, I feel like everyone's connected to horror right now. And I mean, I, I just, I, I, have, I don't remember this in the nineties. I don't remember this in the aughts. Like it, it just, it seems so ubiquitous in a way that is unprecedented in a way. I mean, I can't speak for the seventies or eighties cause I, I only remember it as kids, but um, <laughs> it's, it just seems well, so weird. You could call it the, you could call it the second wave. What John pretty much single-handedly with a lot of help, what John kicked off with Halloween mm-hmm. was the second wave of, of enthusiasm for horror after the classics, the original classics, mm-hmm. Frankenstein, The Mummy, and so forth, Dracula. Uh, then came the slasher movies, Halloween and all the rest. And it seems as though this is kind of like a third wave, uh, really condensed obsession. Maybe it has something to do with the fact that People who enjoy being scared yeah. are people who understand that they have control over that. You can turn the damn thing off anytime you want. You can walk out of the theater if it's too much. You have control, whereas out in the real world, you don't get a choice. I think the nation is running scared, yep. uh, and it's being it's being flogged by the fake president. Uh, so what are you going to do? Uh, there's fear everywhere, and it's it's horrible to live with it. But maybe the idea that you can uh, you can harness that fear and corral it some way and control it uh, in the entertainment you enjoy maybe that's linked up and uh, connected in some way. I agree. I mean, I, and I and I think that. It's also that horror is such a good medium for commentary, like cultural commentary. And I feel like now more than ever, it's it's at a level where it kind of similar maybe how the 70s style of horror was where it, it felt like maybe a lot of the horror films were actually comments on like the actual society at large. And uh, I mean, I like to I guess, the, you know, 80s filmmaking was was certainly doing that for sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I feel like that, that some of the scariest films of the last few years have all had ties to like, you know, almost like saying like like political statements in a way. Um, and, yeah. You know. Well, remember, the so-called Republican revolution has been with us since the 80s. Mm-hmm. And from my personal point of view, uh, uh, it, it's been a nightmare. Yeah. Uh, and so maybe maybe I'm not alone in in viewing this whole half century as basically the bad guys are winning. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I live, as many of my friends do, in a constant state of disappointment and angst and certain amount of fear about the way this country is headed. So uh, maybe it's just there's our collective id up there on the screen our fears are being played out in various ways. 
I agree. I mean, I, and I, I mean, it seems to be a, there's something for everyone right now. <laughs> you know, like I, I oh god, we we just did a feature or we ran a feature on our site um, that was talking about there was like a, a like a horror film for every phobia, and the majority of them were all like movies that had come out in the last five to ten years. It just almost seems as if because of like the advent of Shutter and um, all the streaming networks, the, the accessibility of horror is is. I don't feel I feel like horror is more accessible than it's ever been. So everyone can find yeah. something that they can that really gets them in a way. Um, it's almost I, I just wrote a, a piece like a couple of weeks ago that was talking about how I know that people have always likened horror to pornography, but I I almost see it more like pornography in the sense that now you could really search for anything that tickles your fancy <laughs> in a way, well, like for fights. <laughs> it was inevitable that that horror was some some aspect of horror was going to become pornographic and saw proved that yeah and it's saw and its many sequels and and its imitators proved that there's a market out there for torture porn mm-hmm. uh and uh it it is horrendously a turnoff for me that kind of movie but there's clearly a major appetite for it yeah uh uh, it's a it's a really disturbing era we live in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how so? Going into, you know, it's it's interesting. Like now, with with how ubiquitous horror is, and you see it on pretty much every network. You see it on every you see it in every store, book sh- you know, bookstores. You get movies. You get art. You get anything that that that's out there. Going back to 1990, though, to you know the miniseries for it. I know that. That was a pretty. I mean, with the exception of Salem's Lot and a few anthologies here and there, horror wasn't as ubiquitous, and it was kind of a you know a fringe thing. And how hard was that? You know, in hindsight, now looking back and seeing the sort of culture that we lived in back then, to take one of Stephen King's most terrifying stories and bringing it to ABC, which is you know Disneyland basically for network television, and I mean that that's. I can't even imagine the hurdle at that point. Well, I, you know, it was a very daring move on the part of ABC. But let's recall that uh, there are people out there getting paid large sums of money to figure out what the audience is ready for, what the audience will buy. Yeah. And I think somebody at ABC made the very astute um, decision that uh, the general public. Uh, was ready for something like that on commercial television. And yeah. believe me, the, the the word is commercial. The Those folks and those corporations are driven by profit motive. It, yeah. There's no aesthetics involved to speak of. Uh, it's about what will make money. And so I think they very astutely decided that uh, network television was ready for scary stuff. And there's no better name than Stephen King, who is coming off probably the biggest yeah, decade. Uh, had you yeah, had you been a fan of Stephen King at this time? Like you know, around I mean, because the production for this pretty much is almost in tandem with the the publishing schedule. I mean, it, it wasn't too long after the, the book came out that there were already talks and discussions for bringing it and adapting it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I couldn't say I was a rabid fan. I was familiar with his work, and uh, I knew about Carrie, and I'd read Firestarter, 
Uh, and just, you know, I'd say a, a passing fancy without being a fanatic about him. Uh, and I had not read it when the offer came down, or it wasn't an offer, it was a possibility based on a meeting uh, that was to come. But I, uh, I, as soon as I read the first night of two, a, a uh, teleplay by Larry Cohen, mm-hmm. I I was bowled over. I thought it was brilliant and wonderful, and I just couldn't wait to get involved. You guys, you know it's been nicer lately, and in Wisconsin, you never quite know when winter is going to be in, but it's been nice for like four days in a row, and I'm like, if sunnier days are coming, it's time to fuel up, and so I'm going back to my factor meals that no prep, no mess. I want to hit my weight goals before it's time to hit that beach. You've got options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto. Factor has these fresh, never frozen meals, dietitian approved guys. And here's the big thing for me, keeping out of the kitchen as much as possible, two minutes and these meals are ready. So it doesn't matter how busy you are, you've always got time. So treat yourself. They have 35 different meals to pick from, 60 add-ons to choose every week. You're always going to have new stuff to try. Have it whenever you want. It's effortless, guys. So if you'd like to try it yourself, head to factormeals.com slash badmovies50 and use code badmovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code badmovies50 at factormeals.com slash badmovies50 to get 50% off of your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Were you, did you have any anxieties going into this production? I mean, especially given all the, the changes that had happened prior to signing up? Uh changes what yeah. Do you mean? yeah well with with regards to like the the way that abc had gone you know they they'd resized how many episodes and how many um hours of television they're going to commit and at one point I, you know george I, romero was was attached and you know was there was there any anxiety coming from that just being like all right well it seems as if i'm does it did it feel almost like a like a like cleanup in a way just be like all right i gotta assess the situation and figure it out <laughs> no if if I suppose if I was a much more analytical, business-oriented person, I would have done a lot of homework about all that. But I think my approach was probably the the uh, the best one for me, which was blissful ignorance. I didn't <laughs> I didn't look into the history of the project at all. I looked at what was in front of me. Mm-hmm. Can I? Can I do an adaptation of Stephen King's thousand-page novel in a two-night miniseries <laughs> uh, on a budget that pretty well matches the kinds of budgets I'd been dealing with before? If you you know proportion it out, mm-hmm. it might have even been a little bit more money than I was accustomed to working with. So uh, I I didn't. I didn't pay any attention to the the backstory leading up to it. If I had, it would have felt like, you know, sloppy seconds. Yeah. It would have felt like uh, a consolation prize. You know, they've used up a lot of the money and they've whittled it down and they've, you know, they've just wasted a lot of time and money. Mm-hmm. And here's what's left. What can you do with it? Uh, that doesn't feel like a good way to... To proceed, <laughs> no, and no, no. in fact, in in fact, I I made made myself blissfully unaware of all of that, mm-hmm. and just went in on the merits of what was in front of me. 
And you say that you were, you know, in a, in a previous interview I was reading, I believe it was the, the maybe the Yahoo oral history, but you say that you were filming while, uh, you know, Cohen was still writing. Is, is that true? Or had the, had, you know, were you still writing it? Cause I know that the first part you'd fallen in love with the second part, you felt there were some complications with it. And I know he, Oh, it was, it was terribly underwritten. Night one was brilliant. Night yeah. two was a train wreck. Um, it's as if he and perhaps Stephen King's input had decided that it was just too much and just to make something up that makes it feel like it all comes to a conclusion and and draw the curtain. And I thought, what a loser idea. Let's <laughs> go for the best we can do with, with the uh, Reader's Digest version of this towering, colossal novel. Yeah. And butch up, man up about it, and try and complete it in some meaningful way that will cause people who love the book to at least recognize the book in it. Uh, Larry wasn't interested, Larry Cohen. Yeah. Uh, it would have required, I needed him to come to Vancouver and work with me on night number two. And, uh, uh, to be charitable, let me just say that I guess he had other plans. Yeah, I mean, had, did so you feel I, abandoned at that point? I mean, because I, 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 of I, course I, I did. Yeah, of course I, mean, I did. I felt that they, that it was very unprofessional on his part, and that's probably all I should say about that. Yeah, uh, I was all alone, and I needed a rewrite, and I was the only person I knew capable of doing that rewrite mm -hmm. for no money. <laughs> Which is, seems so, to be your you know, forte at this point, because I, I'd read that you had also done the something similar for Halloween three with the with the, when it came to it, the announcements. You were just like, ah, absolutely, fuck correct. it, I'll do it. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm well, I'm 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 up to here with writers who think their work is so special and yeah. so sacred that they can't be bothered to help the director uh, achieve some sort of coherent uh, collaboration, but instead. Just say, nah, I'm not. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna help you. I thought that was cheap and unprofessional. Did you? And did, please, let's move on because if I keep running down <laughs> Larry Cohen, it will overshadow the fact that I thought his first night's work was absolutely brilliant. No, absolutely. I, I, I and when when you had to actually go into the second part for writing it, did you have to then like go? All right, well, time to read. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have to like dig into oh, the book? At oh, that absolutely! Point? <laughs> by then, by then, I had I had soaked up the novel. Okay, okay, and realized what a daunting task <laughs> yeah. it was going to be. So, I I think there's an inevitable letdown uh, to the second part of the story, but I also think that's built into the book, mm -hmm. and so I won't take all the blame for that. Um. It had to be resolved, and it had to involve all seven characters. And as far as I was concerned, the climax of the action was a confrontation, an ultimate confrontation between the lucky seven and uh, the creature. Yeah. And according to Stephen King, the creature was a big spider in a cave. <laughs> now, when I read it in the book... I kind of there was also this cosmic in mm -hmm. battle in outer space between the 
you know, supernatural force of good and evil, I guess, yeah. or something involving a giant turtle. I I really knew that was beyond me. I I wasn't even going to try to tackle that. And probably for network television uh, too. <laughs> I would imagine that might be a little too cerebral for network television. It was just it, it was just <laughs> beyond me. But the the confrontation with the creature uh, somehow it it was okay with me. I could justify it because the kids themselves, the Losers Club grew up in an era when it was the wolf man and it was giant creatures from outer space. Yeah. So it sort of fit that model in a mm -hmm. funny way, in a nostalgic way that was okay with me. Uh, but uh, I feel like I did, in fact, the Reader's Digest version of the, uh, of, of, of the novel. Totally. Which, is a cha a challenge in itself. Yeah, no, it is. Especially since there's so many moving parts by the time you get to what would culminate into night two. I mean, it's, in the book itself, there's a, I mean, there's like over a dozen threads that some superfluous to the actual main story, some that just are just little trinkets that King is so he's just that's just such that's just his trademark is to have like all these little puzzle pieces that come into this one thing at a whole but when you're adapting it for the screen i can imagine it's just like okay we got to get rid of a lot of this fat and at that point it's well, even it, that's a process <laughs> itself it was daunting it was yeah. it was terribly daunting and remember this was an unexpected writing assignment yep. i was in pre-production on the movie itself oh my at the time so i'm real proud of of, of that part mm -hmm. of of the thing and i won't apologize too much for what i consider to be a, a little bit of a letdown between night one and night two uh couldn't you, help it well i mean you know with at the time king was already was really getting heavily involved with a lot of his adaptations and you know he had written screenplays for a variety of them and even the the prior year he had done one for pet cemetery you know i had read in one of the interviews that you would you'd that you'd know you'd heard that you never knew and never asked why the studio had decided not to have him involved and do you feel that was maybe a studio decision or do you think that was maybe king's decision himself uh it's probably one of those things where we were moving at a hundred miles an hour. Mm -hmm. We had we had a script and we had a novel. Uh, if I had had like six months prep, I would my first phone call would have been to Stephen King. Yeah, but I didn't have six months prep. <laughs> I had I had to take what was in front of me. And not waste one minute of one day on anything that distracted from what was right in front of me. So involving the writer, uh, the novel writer, mm -hmm. mind you, not the, not the script writer. Yeah. Involving the novel writer who, while he would have been able to add, no doubt, great... Uh, layers of nuance and texture and kind of insight 
it would have slowed the process down. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, do you? I mean, what do you recall most from this? This these moments? I mean, I imagine how long. First off, how much time did you have to be able to just reshuffle, rewrite, and go into production? I mean, you were already in production. You had said. I mean, was it a week? Was it two weeks? Was it a month? I mean, how how much time did you really have to actually kind of figure out the script again? It's. I honestly can't remember how many weeks we had of prep. It might have been six weeks. Oh, wow. Uh, whatever it was, it it was I had to come home from a day of prepping and then jump on the typewriter and uh, and blaze away on the rewrites. Uh, you know, I, it would have been great to have had more time. It would have been great to have Stephen King himself involved. It would have been great to have had Larry Cohen involved. Yeah, all of that would have would have probably made for a better presentation. But those things just weren't possible. The uh, the wheel the wheels were already turning. the The train was leaving the station and there wasn't going to be time for like, okay, well, uh, let's all go to Malibu and hold up in a house and we'll hash out this, uh, yeah. this second night. Yeah. I would, I would love that. Oh, that would, absolutely. Would have been great. Well, I mean, that's uh Oh my God. I can't even imagine what the, uh, the stress was there any point at that, that entire process. You're like, I don't know if this is going to happen. <laughs> like, where you're like, no, not at all. Because I'll tell you, uh, much credit is due to, uh, <clears throat> Jim green and Mark Bacino, mm -hmm. whose company green Epstein, uh, really provided just incredible support along with the guys in Canada uh, Matthew O'Connor and and others, who just made my life simpler by having being so competent and so ready to support and so able to uh, expose me to good people, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, that was that that made it all better. There were no wrinkles behind the scenes uh, for me because they shielded me from. What, you know, if somebody were to write a novel about behind the scenes on it, I'm sure there were just day after day of intrigue. Yeah. But they did. They did what good producers do. They shielded me from all the day to day concerns so that I could focus on what my job is. And that is let's turn this story into something up on the silver screen. And one of the biggest parts of that, obviously, is is putting the face to the names. And I, I know that a lot of it, especially for the adult portion, was, uh, quote unquote, telephone casting. And was this something that you were used to or was this a new thing for you at that point? Um, were there any like, well, hesitations these were, these were, uh, without a doubt, the biggest stars I had dealt with up to that point. Uh, and so even though it was largely telephone casting, uh, the producers and I were deeply involved. It was really a, a conversation between myself, the producers, and the network. Mm -hmm. uh, and the names we were dealing with uh, were were well-established. Mm -hmm. It wasn't going to have to be like a 
their auditions were not going to be necessary to cast, you know, Tim Curry as Pennywise. That was a coup. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it was, just sounded like a brilliant idea. And I'd, I'd heard before I came in the door that other names had been bandied about. But for me, the minute Tim was mentioned as a possibility, I was I was all on board with him. And it went that same way down the line. You know, I was quite familiar with uh, Richard Thomas's work, mm-hmm. and he seemed like he'd be the perfect Bill. And John Ritter, my God, how cool could that be? And yeah. so forth, all the way down through the adult casting. Uh, that All that went pretty smoothly. And then the real challenge was to be up in Vancouver and cast children who it would make sense that that child grew up to be that person, Mm -hmm. you know, that we'd already cast. And I think that was our secret weapon. I think we did that part extremely well. And those connections between the kids and the adults, I think are very real. Uh, And just as an example of how assiduous we were about that, we had a a three-day uh, actors boot camp, basically, where the adults and the children hung out together, even though they had no scenes together. <laughs> and it was it cost some money to get the uh, adult stars up to Vancouver mm-hmm. uh, for the boot camp, and then send them back to wherever they, you know, their homes were. But it oh it paid such dividends. Oh, I bet. They learned body, they mutual body language and gestures and things together, that really make that part of the show convincing. And in truth, although Stephen King is rightfully called the master of horror, I think his truer title is the master of childhood. Yeah, I think that he is the foremost writer working today mm-hmm. about the experience of childhood and bonding and friendship and rites of passage and all the rest. I think that's truly his greatest gift. Oh, I agree. Uh, like wholeheartedly. I mean, I, I mean, and it's his influence is felt so much today. I mean, like that the show stranger things would not exist without, you know, the, the way that he's kind of created the bonds between kids. Uh, I mean, I think the yeah. number of sitcoms that follow, Stand, you know, the body, or um, or it, or even some of his earlier works, like even to an extent, like Carrie. I mean, Carrie kind of sets a lot of the template for how high schoolers are portrayed in horror films and even TV absolutely. And yeah, I agree a hundred percent, a hundred percent. For you though, to go from to pivot from you know child actors to established veterans, I imagine that had to been quite a learning curve. <laughs> Um, well, that's that's a good way of putting it, Michael. I uh, the I was intimidated going into the show because I was going to be dealing with some giants of television mm-hmm. uh, and the movies, and I figured, my God, if these people want to, we're going to be doing scenes where you know they're like five, six, seven stars right there on set with me. How on earth? They'll eat me for lunch, you know. <laughs> uh, but in fact, they were all splendidly professional and supportive of the group and supportive of me. And it made my job easier. Uh, the kid actors were much more challenging. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
understandably because they're kids and all that energy. I, I'm proud to say I think we funneled most of that energy right onto the screen. Um, but they were a handful. Uh, that was that was the biggest challenge involved. It was a relief because we shot the kids first. It was a great relief when we were starting to to be done with them and the adult actors came to town. I didn't know what to expect, but it was, it, they made it so much easier. It was a great relief to coast into to the, the comfort zone that they provided me. Did any of them um, get the kind of method for <laughs> like the kids starting to like really just, you know, call themselves bill or, or, um, you know, if they, like... Oh no, no, no. I, I, I certainly don't encourage that. Although yeah. I respect that if somebody needs to do that, I understand Remy Malik on the, on the, uh, the queen movie. Yeah. I understand. I understand. He stayed in character all day, every day. Yeah. And if that, you know, if that's what he needed to do to get his performance, well, fine. But it, it does take a kind of toll on uh, on everyone else <laughs> around an actor who needs that kind of uh, approach. Yeah. Nobody, yeah. nobody on it uh, took that approach. Everybody was very easy and casual on set, well prepared. And when it was time to do their scene, they just went into character and away we went. What was your uh, favorite memory from the set for either, you know, for the, the kids or the adults? I I have one that uh, we were operating a camera on a piece of equipment called a hothead, which was a, a crane that would suspend the camera out on the end of a pole, mm-hmm. basically. And then the operator would would do what what he was doing uh, in front of a little kit, you know, like a suitcase over near the set. Mm-hmm. Uh, he could make the camera pan and tilt and follow the action from that. And the scene I'm talking about is where the camera is inside the circle of kids and it's going around the group from face to face to face to face. <laughs> and it was it, it was a sacred moment for them, uh, the characters, I mean, mm-hmm. and uh, a very important emotional bonding uh, that sets the stage for night number two, you know, promise to say, say you'll come back if, if something happens. Yeah. Promise it. So a lot depended on that shot. And yet we were working with a, not only a new piece of equipment, but uh, I think the camera operator was a substitute. I think our regular guy was sick that day or something. And so this poor guy, he's trying to operate this shot and he's got Richard, the director of photography on one in one ear and I'm in the other ear, you know, slower, slower. Oh <laughs> no. Okay. Now go faster. Fa-. And somehow it all, I think there were about three takes of that. And it finally all just came together in a nice magic moment. And then we followed that with another shot that sweeps in uh, over the water. You yeah. know, that, that hothead camera is such a great piece of equipment. And I'm sure it's been improved upon in the many years since. Uh, just for expressive, the, the, the free expression 
of something that only cinema can bring you, you know, just that fantastic sense of almost flying. Totally. Uh, That's one of my favorite moments. No, it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. How do you, you know, based on how things are on television and you, you know, there's so much, um, so much of like the cinematic medium that's kind of taken over television over the last like 10, 15 years. And do you feel things would be much different if you were bringing it to ABC now versus then? Gosh, I, I really don't know. Um, I, I feel as though storytelling has suffered a few blows, uh, because of the influx of so many commercial directors and directors of photography, commercials and music videos, where anything goes, it's all for visual style, mm-hmm. as it should be. Why not? You know, yeah. just work out and enjoy yourself and get splashy and show off because that's that's the assignment is get the audience's attention. Mm-hmm. But I think something's been lost in coherence and basic old, old school rules of storytelling. I think there's a whole new generation of directors who've never heard of a stage line or yeah. a screen direction because it just, just last night I was watching TV and there, a commercial came on mm-hmm. and it's a woman who is an older woman who's out jogging. And I think she's jogging to the drugstore to pick up some drug, yeah. you know, that, that, that is what the commercial's about. <laughs> and so she starts out and she's jogging from her house and many shots, many different shots showing her in action and she's moving right to left. So, okay. In, in in the the cerebral story being told, home is off there to the right somewhere, and her destination is off to the left somewhere. Mm-hmm. And then this idiot who directed this thing throws all those rules out the window, and now she appears to be jogging back toward home. But we know <laughs> good and well she's still heading toward her destination. But he doesn't care. He, yeah. he, not only does he does this guy not care, but he may not even know the basic rules of screen direction, mm-hmm. which haven't changed. It's not a fad. No. It's not, no. oh, we've thrown all those rules away. They don't count anymore. They still count. And the proof is in fight scenes in major motion pictures. Oftentimes these days, you can't tell what the hell's going on. Oh, no, it's just a barrage. All. A barrage of imagery. You don't know who hit who or yeah. who threw this thing at this other person because these guys are ignoring basic good storytelling rules about screen direction, uh, placement in the frame, stage lines, all the basics that uh, they presumably don't know about or they have ill-advisedly thrown those rules away. And that's really frustrating to me. And I think that's commonplace now and it's a diminishment of what's really good about movies Mm -hmm. is how precisely you can tell a story if you've got your head on straight about how to direct uh, a visual sequence well i mean with the so right and and i do acknowledge that this is you know an old fart shouting (laughs) sour grapes at the modern movement 
I, I no, I think I think I think those are valid points for sure. I mean, I, I've I've noticed a lot of the times that so many so many shows now, especially, seem to just be style over substance at this point because they go, well, we're doing yeah, new absolutely. tricks, and it's just and everyone touts it as, well, I've never seen this on TV, so it's got to be great, and that's not really the case. It's you know, it's well, <laughs> to me, when I see a show that's marred by a lousy consciousness about basic storytelling. Mm -hmm. I just say to myself, this was a great production. This was brilliantly executed. The tech credits are right up there. It's all great. How much better would it have been if the director could tell a visual story coherently? Yeah. How much better? Yeah. I know. And it, and it frustrates me to no end too, especially when, you know, they're, the like when things aren't succinct, you know, I, I can, you know, one of my favorite directors is David Lynch. So I, I get it. If people things are a little crazy and, you know, spur, you know, erratic and all, and it messes with the, 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 the linear narrative some, but when you kind of toss narrative out altogether <laughs> is when I, I'm just like, I don't have patience for it anymore. I just don't like, I just, you gotta, yeah. there has to be something that kind of, uh, you know, that you can kind of sink your teeth into and kind of take away something as, as opposed to just strictly visuals. Cause it's still at the end of the day, television for me still needs to have some, I think narrative has to be King. Like I, I can't take, you can't, you know, put aesthetic, you know, over narrative and, and just totally, or at least forget narrative altogether, which I see so many shows nowadays do that, you know, and it's just, I don't know. I, I imagine that's well, the, the result of the cinematic kind of transfer that's going over right now. The problem goes deep because now just on an ordinary show where there's people talking for the basic content of the show is divided between a bunch of scenes of people talking to each other versus a few uh, uh, interspersed with a few passages of action of one kind or another. Mm -hmm. The here are these people standing in this room talking to each other. But since the director doesn't have a clue about screen direction or stage lines, who who's talking to whom this guy is looking to the right, but the person that he's presumably talking to is over here also looking to the right. So he doesn't, the guy, the person who directed it is clueless about yeah. uh, stage lines. Yeah. Well, these things mean something. You don't, you know, uh, a new car that's just come out on the market, if the designer said, well, shit, we don't care about the internal combustion engine. It doesn't have any meaning anymore. Uh, <laughs> let's design this thing without pistons. The car is <laughs> not going to run. Yeah. And that's what's happening yeah. uh, is throwing, throwing out these rules is something like, oh, that's old school. It's just bullshit. It's I, just people not doing their jobs correctly. I hundred percent agree. Um, you know, but, look, you know I, I could rant. I could rant about that one all day. <laughs> oh no, ditto, ditto, absolutely. Um, with you know, with with regards to the new it, I wanted to know: Have you seen it yet? Uh, have you seen the, the the one that came out last year? I have not seen it. It's on my stack, and I'm really interested. And I, uh, most of the people I've spoken to have said they thought it was really a respectable piece of work and are looking forward to what amounts to night two, I guess you could say, the yeah. second half of the story. Um, the only thing I've seen so far that gives me pause is uh, the design of the Pennywise look mm -hmm. is 
fiendishly scary looking. Yeah. And so I have to ask, what child in their right mind would go anywhere near this creature? <laughs> That's, he yeah. doesn't have he doesn't have a fun side. He doesn't look inviting. Yeah. He's he's fooling no one into thinking he's a good guy. Yeah. So how did, how how on earth is that supposed to work in the context of luring kids into his you know, underground lair? That, that just doesn't quite gel. No, that's something we debated for sure. Even just even even back on the book, I, I had argued saying like, "Look, if I'm eight years old and I see anything in the sewer drain, I am not going to go go you know go towards it." And then, you know, we we were joking around like saying like, "What could possibly be in a sewer drain that would make me want to stay and reach my hand in?" Like, and we were trying to like debate that. So, I, no, I agree. Like, if there is this kind of terrifying well, I, thing, I, I like, think Tim, no. I think I think Tim Curry proved that it is possible. Yeah. He was just he was just convincing enough to cause Georgie to come closer. Mm-hmm. And that's all that matters is yeah. is this clown interesting enough and friendly enough to fool a kid into at least t- reaching a hand out uh for a balloon or whatever. I I think we got away with it, but I think the the clown makeup on the new guy as as artistic as it is and it's really beautiful is also grotesque and scary looking yeah i would definitely not walk up to it at all to me (laughs) that's no way that's to me that that's overplaying the hand of the clown it's like wait yeah yeah he looks scary so who's gonna go near him yeah, it's 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 like turning on the lights a little bit too, or I, I guess just revealing the scare a little bit too fast. And you know what's great yeah. about Curry is that, you know, even going back to Rocky Horror Picture Show, I, I had just caught it uh, a couple of weeks ago again uh, for Halloween. And what's what's great about it is that you're not necessarily like frightened or won over by uh, Frankfurter when you first see, um, you know, when you first see the character and. What's great about that is that I feel like Curry almost brought that over to, you know, Pennywise for sure, because there is that weird dichotomy of like, do I trust this person? Do I love them? You know, or do I, you know, do do I love or hate this person? And I, I, and that was like something of a parallel I was thinking of watching at this time this year. I was just like, yeah, he really does bring that strength over to Pennywise because you do have to sell. It is a sell. Tim was very, uh, very insistent. Uh, I had some facial pieces designed to make him even more a little bit surrealistic that was uh, a chin piece and some cheekbone pieces and i think some brow pieces over his eyes that we were trying out and he was pretty adamant that he just wanted his face to do the work yeah and he he was so thoroughly right. I did hang on to the big bulbous forehead, and I thought that was a good choice. Mm-hmm. But but that's what we're looking at is Tim's face, yeah. And without without a lot of special makeup on it, uh, and to me, that's what won the children over is the he does have this side that's friendly, yep, and that that you could believe like oh. Yeah, I like him. I want to go. Yeah, tell me more. And then, uh, and then, Kapow. Yeah, yeah, 
Yeah, and I, and I and I feel like the practicality of it was so imperative too. I mean, and one of my one of my biggest criticisms with the new film was just that, and a lot of horror in general, and maybe this is one of the reasons why I love Halloween three so much too, is that there's just a lack of practicality now, and 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 nothing really seems tangible. Everything seems so kind of surreal in the sense because it's all you know computer generated, and there seems to be a lean on effects, and the effects kind of do a lot of the heavy lifting whereas i think there's there's something far more terrifying when you can when it's palpable when it's tangible when you can just when it's right in front of you and yeah. that's another thing that i just i i thought was i think that what is the biggest miss on the the new film for sure for me was just that i never got <laughs> that you know it just it felt so well this person's not really there <laughs> like <you> know, <laughs> it just doesn't matter but well, um, you know people uh, uh i think cgi is still a great sensation at this point and hasn't been quite put in its proper perspective. I think it's a marvelous tool to have in the toolbox of the filmmaker, but it's still being overused and still being a kind of crutch. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you can do something convincing in real time on set, it's so much, it has so much more gravity about it so much more weight to it that the problem with CGI is it's just like animation. It doesn't have any weight. Uh, And it's very hard to program that into CGI effects. That's a whole extra layer uh, that uh, is still kind of being explored. It's not perfected yet. And so that's why so many CGI effects look phony. Yep. is well they are phony they're just you know they're just animation yeah and it's, um, and it's odd because it's you know there's an uncanny valley to it and you know granted there's a lot of that there's something about that with stop motion too because you know when you're watching stop motion that it's it's obviously there's an animation to it but for me i don't know maybe it's just my upbringing or whatever but like there's something far more jarring and terrifying to stop motion than say you know, just having a computer animated thing that's just sitting there. Well, you can believe, I, I can believe Ray Harryhausen yeah. stop motion yeah. because it's, it's a real thing being photographed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and if it's movement is a little jittery, the brain can also accept that as, well, that's the way that creature moves, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. you know? You, you you can kind of slot it into believability by saying, well, hell yeah, the, the clown or the cyclops or whatever doesn't move the way you and I move. Yeah. Uh, whereas whereas CGI fixes that, which would seem like an improvement, but it can easily be too plastic and too fake. And I feel like almost just the practical effects in general just add a certain, I don't know if, if the term levity makes sense, but even just like looking back and on some of my favorite uh, horror films or even action films or any films in general that deal with a lot of more practical effects, there just seems to be this sense of collaboration that you just don't have when you're standing around in green screens and stuff. And I, and I feel like that almost makes a better movie too because you have this teamwork well, effect. If you can find a, a, a an onset effect to to use uh, instead of just saying, "Oh, we'll fix that in post," 
you, it's it, it, it's in keeping with the all the other illusions of reality that film brings. I mean, just an ordinary shot of a person talking is an illusion of reality. It's not really happening like that. It's mm-hmm. a two-dimensional illusion uh, flickering at 24 frames a second. Uh, so none of it's real. Yeah. But people get, I think people get caught up in the, also, there's this other factor, the difference between, uh, in, in a scary movie, for example, the difference between suspense and the tools of suspense and expectation and playing with those expectations and all the tools of, of real scary audience manipulation on the one hand, and then just the pure sensationalism of guts and gore. Uh, and action and CGI sort of splashiness, big explosions and stuff on the other. And I think a lot of directors and filmmakers in general have confused the two and gotten into this idea that bigger and bloodier is scary. Uh, and generally, it's not at all. I agree 100%. Well, I have I have one last question because um, I, okay. I, I I know I've kept you on the hook for a while, um, so I apologize for that. Uh, you know, I know John Carpenter is really into doing music right now. Uh, it's one of his favorite things to do. Do you guys keep in touch still? And have you ever thought about jamming, yeah. jamming together again as uh, maybe the Coupe de Villes? <laughs> we talk about it. Uh, Nick and I uh, have seen more of each other lately than John and I. Uh, I think I last saw John when he was up here in Oakland uh, playing one of his shows, and I went backstage and we talked a while. Uh, and uh, we stay in touch. Several of us USC alumni uh, get together for lunch once in a while uh, when I go down uh, to Los Angeles for business or for visiting old friends. Uh, so we do stay in touch, but... Uh, Kind of not as much as I'd like, but that's just the way life uh, life is. Maybe Nick uh, John actually alluded to uh, somehow including the Coupe de Villes in one of his musical shows. Yeah, that's uh, that, that's but, what I was thinking. It would be fun for like a Halloween show or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see where that shakes out. That's entirely up to him, of course. But I think Nick and I are willing. Well, for like w- waiting out the eighties, like w- w- what bands were you listening to around then? Because w- w- me and my uh, me and my buddy Mike Vanderbilt, we, who's over at Daily Grindhouse, we're just real big fans of this era, and we've just always I don't know. There's just something so much fun about it, and I've we've always wondered like what what were your inspirations or what bands were you all listening to at this time? Well, I I uh, I think John because of the music he was making for his movies was maybe a lot more synthesizer oriented yeah than than I was uh, my personal tastes at that time and in fact still to this day my two favorite bands were Steely Dan and Los Lobos nice two quite two quite different bands but mm-hmm. to me they sum up everything I love about uh, rock and roll beyond <laughs> that I was starting to explore world music and jazz and country and uh Obviously, since childhood, classical music played a big part. So I I couldn't say that I, that's you know a general 
Well, we could have another hour's worth of conversation about music and uh, music loves and so forth. But uh, that'll suffice, I guess. Well, I, I get, that definitely gives me some idea of exactly how the, the, the album came to be. And it just also just, just a culmination of so many different facets of rock and roll and I, so I, I know i would i would be totally thrilled if you if you all came back together and, and did something again because that just seems like well it, it would be it would be fun <laughs> yeah but uh we'll just see how that shakes out <laughs> well if it shakes out i uh look forward to that for sure and you know mr wallace thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me and you know our podcast and i wish you all the best and hope that we can talk in the, in the future, especially if we, you know, if you want to talk about music sometime, cause we are a music site. So oh. this would be great to talk. about. Uh, music I'd be delighted. Sure. <laughs> I'd be delighted. It's been a pleasure, Michael. Oh, I enjoyed thank you it so very much. much. Well, have a good one. Okay. You too. Talk soon. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Yeah, it wasn't too bad. And I think that you would appreciate these little bonus episodes. And you're going to appreciate the next episode that we're going into. Rob Zombie's Halloween. Yes, his 2007 remake. So keep your eyes peeled for that one. Because while we will go to Elm Street, as we've announced on our socials and on this very pod itself, we're still stuck in Halloween land. So while we will be going into Rob Zombie's first remake... We're also going to be going into its crazy wild sequel, Halloween 2 from 2009. So get ready for that. And we'll also be doing a little bonus episode that involves a, a tiny film called Black Christmas. So many tricks, treats, presents, gifts, whatever you want to call them. We've got a lot coming to you. So please remember to rate and review us on iTunes because we're giving you so much content. So much. And all we ask in return is for a nice little review. Until then, lock your doors, bolt your windows, and turn off the lights. Stay tuned for the big giveaway at 9. It's time. It's time. Time for the big giveaway. This is just the same old stuff. It's come. All you lucky kids with silver shamrock masks, gather round your TV set, put on your masks, and watch. Honey, don't get too close. You'll ruin your eyes. Jack-o'-lanterns, gather round. Watch, watch the magic pumpkin. Watch. <laughs> I think this whole thing is a big joke. I mean, look at this. <laughs> I Thank <laughs> you.